So Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 11. And we're going to look at just the closing words of Paul in the book of Galatians. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcisions counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brothers, amen. Morning, Jennifer. Morning, Jill. Hugh and Jill. Um, so we're closing out our, our look in the uh, um, book of Galatians. And, and by the way, I'll, I'll mention a quick kind of prayer request to, uh, um, you know, my nieces, Katie and Michaela are typically on here and Katie's on today. Michaela, I don't see yet um, her uncle. Uh, <clears throat> so my sister-in-law's oldest brother um, was killed last night in a motorcycle accident. And uh, so if you would just uh, keep them in prayers. Um, her, their dad is in a assisted living home, so he's on lockdown and can't get out. Um, and so my sister-in-law is on her way up to um, kind of help make arrangements and do some things. So keep them, keep them in prayers. Good morning, Penny. Good morning, Titus. Pastor Titus. So uh, we just read Galatians 6, just the tail end, 11 through 18. Uh, and, and so Paul is closing out the book of Galatians and he closes it out a lot different than he does others. Typically, he um, gives them some nice little greetings and salutations and uh, a little bit of encouragement, slap on the back, all that type of stuff. And you know, like we said, this letter, he's he's upset. You know, they're they're trying to change the gospel. They're they're trying to make it a Christ and and he's really just adamant that don't do that. And 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 so he he writes this this phrase he goes see what um see what large letters I am to write I am writing to you with my own hand. Um you know Paul some theologians uh write that well the large letters maybe he was going blind maybe his thorn in the flesh was a uh, uh, an issue um, with penmanship or his uh, his visual, um, and yet other authors say that based on the tenses, that it was more more along the lines of, hey, you know, he'd been using a scribe, the scribe had been writing everything, and now he was choosing to write it himself, and, and in writing it himself, he was using big letters, kind of like when you send a text all in capital letters. Um, you know, and by the way, if you don't know that, that's screaming in text speech. Okay. Um, so very quickly, you need to learn that when you send emails or anything in all caps, it's like you're screaming. And, and that's what Paul was kind of maybe seeing that he was doing. Good morning, Sharon was, you know, he's, he's adamantly sharing with them. 
Don't do this, okay? It is not Christ and, it's Christ, faith in Christ alone. And so he then, in the end, he goes back almost to his arguments and reminds them of the kind of two key accusations. And, and one is the opponents were advocating circumcision to make a good showing. They just wanted themselves to look better. They wanted to puff themselves up and, and their, the outward nature of all of that. And they really, they had a personal concern for self over the care of those around them. And I love it. Paul comes back. We'll come back to this in a second, but the whole boasting. Paul didn't boast on being the founder of all these churches. He didn't boast that he probably personally had a hand in saving each and every single one of these. Um, I've heard lots of numbers of Billy Graham and how many people were probably saved in his crusades. None of them ever came out of Billy Graham's mouth. Billy Graham never bragged and boasted about the number of people who were touched and saved through his ministry. Think about that. And that's what Paul was doing here is saying, I, I, uh -uh. I will boast only in Jesus Christ because he's the one who has saved you. He's the one who's brought you. And I'm not going to use it as a, an attitude to buff up, uh, puff myself up. And so therefore, you know, weigh the options. You have these people over here that are telling you, you need, you aren't good enough yet because you need to do all these other things. And so, but, but they're really kind of, arrogant about it, boasting about you and well, I'm helping. I'm, you know, I'm mentoring them. Yeah. Yeah. If it wasn't for me, you know, um, it, no, no. And Paul's going, no, that's not it. I boast in Jesus Christ and what the Holy Spirit does in their lives. And that's it. Um, the second kind of emphasis or accusation he's pointing out is, is this group that's compelling the Gentiles to circumcision, to avoid persecution, you know, avoid the persecution. So at stake was really, in Paul's mind, a standing with Jesus. Um, their selfish intent was leading people astray. They didn't want to be persecuted of, well, we've got these Gentiles hanging around us and they don't act like our Jewish ways. And so therefore, let's make them all like us. And, you know, if you look historically at what some of the early missionaries did, and, and not, not all did this, there, there were some who, I mean, um, stories in the holiness movement. So uh, in the early Methodist Episcopal, the missionaries that went to Sierra Leone packed all of their items into coffins. And that was how they traveled was with every earthly good they owned in a coffin because they knew that they were probably going to die on the shores and never make it home again. But then there were others who came in along with some of the British movements where it was you go into a tribe and um, eliminate all the heathenry immediately and expect them to act, live, talk, and you know teach proper etiquette because, well, I mean, we use silverware. Um, and um, we know how that works because sometimes we can't even teach our own kids what's the difference between three forks. You know, why are, 
I still don't understand why there's three. One's good enough for me, right? Uh, you know, but we would go in and we would try to make them look, sound, and act like us. And that's what the Jews were doing here to the Gentiles, is trying to compel them that they weren't good enough unless. And that stake was the standing of Jesus Christ. Was he good enough? Was his death on the cross enough? Paul talks about the identity with Christ, the standards, the rewards, the entrapments of this world all must be put aside based in the glory of what Jesus Christ did for us. He's the one who can make a king a pauper and a pauper a king. He's the one who can make the, the poor the most joyous and the most rich the most miserable. You know, and Paul quickly says that it's not about the rank, the race and the role, those things, those key qualifiers for what's around us and what the world thinks. It's not those things that, that prove my status. It's not any outward sign that proves my relationship. Let my life prove. Let my fruits prove. And he then goes on with this unique phrase. He he calls out the you know the the Israel, the, the these people being the Israel of God. Let me find it here in the verses. I didn't write down the verse number. Um, right at the bottom of sixteen. And for those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And, you know, we've seen that he, when he's been talking about the children of promise, about Israel, and, and it's not just a Jewish clan anymore. He's talking about all these people, Jew and Gentile, that are all now children of the promise. They, they all, because of what Jesus Christ has done, are all a part of that family, that family of God, right? And my brain is singing the song that I grew up with, the old Gaither, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Yeah, are you right? You know, it's, it's, that's what, that's what God did for us. Those that didn't deserve it, who weren't a part of the original promise to the Israelite nation, and he grafted us in. And so it's important for us to realize what happens in the church and around us. And, you know, the world creates attention for us outwardly. The, the world around us every single day creates a tension for believers who, who live in it. You know, we can see the effects of that tension in the face of a beggar, the face of hopelessness in, in, in individuals. We can see it in the conniving manipulation of the prosperous, the dog-eat-dog. Dog. If you've ever worked in business, and I'll tell you, even working in a Christian organization, there were individuals who you knew um, don't, ever, don't, don't, don't ever turn your back because their goal was just to get up, to get higher 
and it didn't matter who they stepped on. You know, the world creates a tension for us as believers with those around us sometimes. Not a negative tension per se, but it's something that we are mindful of and we watch. We see how we as believers who have hope, who have been justified, who understand atonement, the adoption, that we can share hope with the most hopeless. But to do that, we must live this crucified life that Paul's talking about. I mean, there's so much in that verse, this crucified relationship with self that I'm never, I'm not good enough. It's sobering. I just heard a song this morning called In the Background. Um, and I didn't get to hear the words real closely, and I, I want to go back and listen to it. But it was this idea that I get to go into the very presence of God. And while I'm praying to God, in the background are the angels crying out, holy, holy. It's kind of mixing that whole like Isaiah and, you know, all of those verses. And, and you, don't, you don't think about that, but it's true. We get to stand in the presence of God in prayer and the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come while we're praying. We have that going on in the background of our prayers. We get to come before God. You know, we must live then in this crucified self, that war of being, you know, and, and being crucified doesn't mean that we all of a sudden become religious, that we all of a sudden are good enough. And, well, you know, I, I ask Christ and, and so therefore I don't do what they do. Right. You know, it's this. This decision to live differently. It's a decision. It's a daily dying, a daily Realizing that I am crucified to who I used to be and I will live only because Christ is living through me. Let me let him shine through. None of my old burn away the, you know, like the refining fire, right? Burn away all the impurities, all the dross so that the pure gold can shine through. It's a relying on Christ and not self. You know, sometimes we can take that crucifying of myself and sometimes we again can add weight to that. Well, I need to do this. I need to do that. And again, it's a decision that all we do is daily get up and say, God, unless you show up, <laughs> unless you live through me today, unless you direct my steps, I'm going to fall. So God, direct me. It's on you. I, I trust you. Live through me. Empower me. Give me strength today. It's that tension. Inwardly as well, there's a tension between doing what's right and, and falling to temptation. We live in that every day. We've talked about that on here, that, that just because we're saved doesn't mean we're immune 
from the evils around us, the temptations to fear, to anxiety, to depression, to even other things, gossip, slander, uh, sexual immorality, whatever it might be. We just because we're believers doesn't mean we're immune to the darts of the evil one, right? The challenge is when we do falter and fall, is God's grace sufficient? Do we turn to him? Do we focus so much on him that we don't want to do those things? But if we do, we don't waller and fall into that filth. But we turn around. We say, God, God, I'm sorry. Do our moments between falling and repentance get shorter and shorter and shorter? That's what he does in our life. And it leads us to understand more and more what Paul's been talking about, that this tension of a divine relationship. We get to go before our Father. We get to learn to know him more. The Holy Spirit working in us, guiding us. We have his Son as an example, and we get to go into the presence of God Almighty We get to learn. We get to grow in a relationship. You can't have a friendship without a relationship, and you can't have a relationship without a conversation, right? Uh, You know, I've said that before on Sundays. That's, That's the depth of it. And we get to understand this divine relationship so much more. And as we understand it, we begin to not turn it to pride, not to arrogance, but to faith. Paul talks about that more in Romans chapter 3, that it's not uh, for our pride and our puffing up that we get to go before God and learn about what he's done in our lives. And so when Paul turns to this idea of boasting, it's not a worldly negative boasting, but it's a boasting boasting not on self, but a boasting on Christ, a, a boasting in the works of what Jesus Christ has done. No matter whether, you know, growing up, they always talked to us about testimony and taught you how to write your testimony and all that. And I mean, I, I was born, I might as well have been born in a church pew, right? Uh, my dad was a pastor. My mom was the piano player. It, it, um, we were at church every, as long as I can remember, right? I, I mean, I, I um, you know, you could say I uh, um, chipped my teeth on the church pews and the church cement. No, I mean, that. We always were at church. And so I don't have a testimony of, well, you know, I was in jail for six years for uh, murder. And, you know, and, and Paul's going, you don't have to have that. Because for all of us, we have been saved. We have been pulled from what we were. Arrogant, prideful even, whatever it might have been. And we have been saved from that. And as we look at God's grace, it doesn't matter if we were uh, murderers. It doesn't matter if we were just gossips. It doesn't matter what our past was. God's grace, his plan to justify, to atone for, to adopt us, to make us heirs with him. Has won out. That grace, 
that that reaches us in, in the holiness movement. We call it a provenient grace that even while we were sinners, the Holy Spirit is proveniently drawing us, helping us to first understand what sin is. Without the Holy Spirit and that provenient grace, there is no such thing as th as sin. There's no ethical, moral code that tells us inwardly, hey, I probably shouldn't do that. And that provenient grace leads us to a saving grace. The saving grace works to then sanctify us, right? It's the beauty of what God's grace does. It's a multifaceted mystery so that then we can walk as Paul, uh, as Paul did, bearing the marks of Jesus. And, and to be honest, I, I, you know, those, well, those marks, the word is stigmata. If you've ever heard that, it's a, you know, the Catholic use it quite a lot. There's a belief in the stigmata and we won't go into all of that here. Um, but it was marks of trauma. Whether Paul was saying that he had physical marks, which he may have from some of his beatings and whippings and bruisings and jailings and all of that. But our marks of Jesus that we bear on our bodies is the marks of being different. It's that walking with a limp. It's the showing of our woundedness and the showing of our weakness that then he gets to be strong through. Of saying, you know what? I don't have it all together. And I've said that on Sundays, there have been days I am not an individual that's generally prone to any type of anxiety or any type of even depression too often. Um, I do not understand what it means to be clinically depressed. I don't. Um, I've never fully been there. I've been around people who have, but I personally have had, you know, sometimes in things in my life where, yeah, I never didn't want to get out of bed. I, I was depressed. And, and there have been times in these days where I have, I know it. I've been depressed. The stress level, the, the workload, all of that, I've not wanted to get out of bed. I've wanted to sleep more and even an eight hour night um, and I generally get like six to seven, but an eight hour night wasn't enough or a nine hour night on a Saturday or something. It wasn't enough. I, I, I didn't feel refreshed. And, and I know those were days where I was depressed and I, I, I can claim that I can say it because God's still good and he brings us through it. And, and there's hope. There's hope. There's still joy. So sometimes the marks of Christ that we carry, they're, they're not whipping lashings, but they're just a mark of woundedness that we can admit to others, hey, look, I'm not perfect, but I serve a perfect God who loves me just the way I am, but doesn't want to leave me there and is working in my life. And can I just finish off today that we, we don't understand as an American church what the marks of Jesus truly is. We weren't alive 
during the days of Diocletian in the 200s AD, when the persecution of the church had reached its heights. We, we don't understand what it means to worship in China uh, under a regime that um, is rewriting theology. Um, it, it pains me when people have said, well, our government is acting like the Nazis and it's acting like the communists and, and everybody's got their opinions. And I'm not trying to get into all that what's going on right now in our culture. Um, but we're not. Both the Nazis and the Communist Party rewrote theology and told the church what they could and couldn't preach. We're not under that at all. In fact, we are being encouraged to be the church in our villages and communities because people need hope. And even our governor here in Ohio knows that and believes that. We don't know what it means to worship under the threat of death. We don't know what it means to walk for hours to get to a house once a month and sit with one light bulb on, not being able to sing, whether it be a hymn or a chorus, not being able to sing out loud, to have one person in the room whispering, straining to hear because there's 20 of you packed into a dark, dank cellar, afraid that something might, someone might catch you. We don't know what it means to have individuals not purchase from us because we're Christians in a Muslim country. We don't know. So we, as an American church, <laughs> I fear for us. I fear for us in a day of tribulation, um, in a day of hardship, if it ever were to come to America, I fear for us. So I pray that we will be strengthened in Christ so that if a day comes, because let me tell you, as painful it is not to meet in a four walls for, you know, nine weeks now, or I think we're at nine, nine Sundays, um, as painful as that is, we still can meet. We still are worshiping every week. We're allowed to throw it out there on the internet where more and more people get to see it. We don't know what this tribulation would look like. I don't understand it. So I pray that this glimpse that, well, to put it this way, and we've talked as a board, um, when we reopen, it is not a reopen. It is not a relaunch. It's not a new normal. It's a new reality because we live in a new reality in our culture. We live in a new reality in our world. We live in a new reality in how we worship and how we see that we must reach out to our communities. If anything, that's my prayer for us as believers and us as a church that we will 
kick Satan in the head in our village and uh, continue to be a church that is going out, that is bringing in neighbors, looking after those around us and doesn't fall back into a comfortability, back into a normal routine of I come on Sundays, I go to Sunday school, I go to church. Maybe I raise my hand because, you know, I like the song. I hear a little bit from the pastor and then I go back out to my life. It's a new reality that we live in. The world is crying out for hope, for healing. We get to be that new reality. Not so that we get prideful, not so that we can boast, but only to boast in the work of what Jesus Christ does in each and every one of our lives. That's my prayer for our church. So Heavenly Father, we just thank you for what you are doing in our lives, in the lives of our village, our communities, uh, our cities, our nation, and our churches. God, more than ever, we must remember that the church is the body. The church is the people, not the professional ministers, not just a four-wall building. The church is the people of Christ, the Christ followers who are called to go out. The great commission to go and to preach. God, may we go in our lives every day. May we go as we as we go, as we go through the grocery stores, as we go through those routines and things in our lives, as we weed the gardens and talk to our neighbors, whatever it might be, as may we go in the strength of Jesus Christ that you shine through us, not us. Use our weaknesses, use our limps for your glory, to proclaim your strength and what you do in our lives, to redeem, to restore, and to transform. Lord, that is something that our nation, our people, they need to see. They need to understand the true hope that only comes from your redemption, your restoration, and your transformation, God. Lord, use us. Use us, we pray. For your glory, in your strength. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. I hope you have a great day. If you're here in Northeast Ohio, enjoy that it's not snowing for the third time in the month of May, right? Um, and uh, enjoy the sunshine. And we'll see you again tomorrow morning. We're going to continue these and probably go right into Ephesians, okay? Um, we'll see you tomorrow morning. Take care.